0: to my library, won't you, and have a seat by the fire. This is Jennifer Passarello from Circa19XX.com and the Circa Sunday Night Podcast. But tonight, we're not in either of those places. We're in the Vintage Century Reading Room, and I have a book to share with you that had been lost in the mists of time. Let's have a little read, shall we? lonely with a friend like you, for your driving all my kids away. Hello there, and welcome. Has it really been two whole weeks since we met up here in the reading room? Wow, you know, the older I get, the faster time goes by. I think that's especially true on the weekends. <laughs> you know, my mom used to always say that all the time when i was younger and it always elicited an eye roll on my part and now i'm the one saying it so that's always the way isn't it well what did you do this weekend did you have any fun i did i went shopping this weekend actually i went shopping today and wow did i end up with a haul so i bought six old chairs Now these are not super old, but they're vintage, they're not new for sure, and they're sort of an old-fashioned style, and the dealer or someone along the line painted these chairs a, a glossy black, and I thought the effect was really beautiful. So I bought these six chairs, there were two captain's chairs, or actually no, there were three captain's chairs with the arms, and three chairs without arms. So I know that's weird, three and three, but for my purposes, that actually worked. Because my plan was to put these chairs in my breakfast nook, which is what I did, and they look fabulous, by the way. So that was a great find, and the whole set of six chairs was $125. I mean, wow, you can't beat that. And these are real wood chairs. So anyway, fabulous find there. And then I also found this beautiful, beautiful dark oak flip-top table from the 1920s. Now, I bought that for my Springfield Cottage. Now, the unfortunate thing about this is that I got all of this great furniture, but all I had was my car to transport them in. And that little shop is about... I don't know, maybe 40 minutes from my house. So there were a lot of trips back and forth, back and forth. So what I saved on those chairs, because I thought that was a really good price, I probably paid for in gas. (laughs) You know, you can't win for losing. But anyway, I'm very pleased with my purchases. I think it all looks really great. Um, Oh, oh, and there was something else too. I also bought this um, at the same antique mall, an old ornate brass plant stand. I have this thing for plant stands. If there's a beautiful plant stand, I have a really hard time not purchasing it, especially the ultra tall ones. Now this one is not extra tall, but uh, let's see, it's about, I'm looking at it right now, I'd say maybe three feet tall, maybe three and a half feet tall, but it's so beautiful. It's very ornate, has kind of an Art Nouveau look to it, and that is now in my breakfast nook along with those new, old chairs. So yes, this was a good shopping day. How fun it is to find fascinating old things. You always feel like you've struck gold. Well, speaking of fascinating old things, how about our book? We're making progress. We're up to chapter four now. And I'm really curious about this chapter. It's entitled Rediscovering Our Inescapables. What could our inescapables be? I don't know. We'll have to uh, find out. We'll know by the end of this episode, won't we? Now, for those of you that are just tuning in, we're reading an old book together. The book is called Take a Look at Yourself, and it's by John Homer Miller. This is a book that I found many years ago at an old vintage bookshop. And because I love the title, and because the spine had this really super cool old font, I bought it. And now we're reading it chapter by chapter. This book was written in 1943. It's no longer in print. At least I couldn't find it anywhere. So if you want to continue on this journey with us, you might want to go back and listen to chapters 1 through 3 to catch up, and then come back here to join us for this one. Now, before we dive into chapter 4, let's do a little recap of chapter 3. In that chapter, Miller walked us through three levels of faith. So, as we grow in faith, we progress from one level to the next. And here's what those three levels were. Animal faith. This is the very basic faith that life is good. Human faith, which is the certainty that the integrity of the human soul is worth maintaining at any cost. And that there's a definite purpose in all experience, good and bad. And cosmic faith. That's the conviction that there's a purpose, plan, order, interdependence, and unity in the cosmos. Okay, well, I think that's a good setup for our next chapter. So let's get started. Chapter 4 Rediscovering Your Inescapables Since the dawn of recorded history, man has had an innate tendency to run away from life, to try to escape his moral responsibilities. He's always been all too ready to make excuses for his mistakes and weaknesses, but never before in recorded history have whole nations of people been provided with a set of ready-made excuses to help them escape the moral responsibility of their shortcomings their mistakes, and their weaknesses. To teach a man that he's the helpless victim of a heartless environment is only to encourage him to blame everything but himself for his difficulties. In the past few decades, people have been educated in the belief that the weakness of personality and character is due completely to bad living conditions, that crime is the result of poverty, and therefore their hope for a better life is to be found Not in changing themselves, but in changing the social system. That their security depends upon conditions outside of themselves. Such teaching is partly true, but it's not the whole truth. Some people, unless they change themselves, would be misfits in any social system. They would feel themselves the victims of any environment as long as each individual refuses to accept his personal share of responsibility for the kind of world he lives in, there can never be any hope for a better life either for him or for the world. This running away from the personal responsibility in those things which can be escaped has so weakened the character and personality of multitudes of people that they find themselves unable to face life's great inevitables which cannot be escaped. Not only have people been taught how to evade moral responsibilities, but science has made living so much easier in this generation that it's created in many people a false conception of life. Today there are people who expect an operation to be not only painless, but even pleasant. Now that science has enabled them to escape some things, they've been led to believe that they can escape everything. A multimillionaire in Chicago a decade ago said, I have no ills a million dollars wouldn't cure. How untrue of life. However much a man may depend upon a government to supply his physical needs, he still has great responsibilities which he must face alone. However much science may relieve physical suffering, there are still peaks of mental and spiritual suffering upon which a man must bleed alone. When you know where you stand and exactly what you must face, you're more likely to settle down and develop within yourself the capacity to meet those things which no one can ever escape. To begin with, you cannot escape yourself. You must live with yourself. You're the only person from whom you can never get a divorce. You have yourself forever and eternally upon your own hands. Now, we talk a great deal about the problem of adjusting a man to his environment, but the greater problem is to adjust man to himself. The problem of fitting a man to his environment is solved the moment he fits himself to himself. You may not have to live in a certain place. You may not have to live with others, but you do have to live with yourself. Recently I was talking with a woman of unusual mind and heart whose whole world had been changed by the death of a loved one. Said she, At first I thought of moving from the home in which we had lived for many years, but I decided that no matter where I went, I could not escape what I feel inside. Said a prisoner serving a long prison sentence, Even if a man does escape the police, there's something inside him. It's no use trying to beat. Death is mild compared to the thing a criminal finds himself up against. I give it up. I can't explain it. He couldn't get away from himself, his own conscience, his sense of guilt. When you see a man trying to escape himself, you may be sure that at that particular moment, he doesn't like himself. And being unwilling to face the truth about himself, seeks escape. Now He may seek it by daydreaming or perhaps by flight into imaginary sicknesses where, well, of course, neither he nor his friends can blame him for his weakness or failure. Or he may seek to escape from himself into a mad world of pleasure. Unable to be alone with himself, he seeks a society of others. He may even contemplate suicide, but his belief in immortality offers no escape. You see, most people try every method but the right one to escape from themselves. Religion offers the only method, which is to face the inescapability of yourself. You begin to get yourself off your own hands when you discover what you can do with yourself for the sake of others. E. Stanley Jones tells of how, years ago, he tried to escape a serious physical breakdown and nervous exhaustion by running away from himself. He tried a furlough in America. He went for a rest in the hills of India, but without success. One night, in prayer, unexpectedly a voice seemed to say to him, Are you yourself ready for this work to which I have called you? He replied, No, Lord, I'm done for. I've reached the end of my resources. The voice replied, If you'll turn that over to me and not worry about it, I will take care of it. He quickly answered, Lord, I close the bargain right here. A great peace settled over his heart and pervaded him. For days after that, he hardly knew he had a body. He went through the days working all day and far into the night and came down to bedtime wondering why in the world he should ever go to bed at all. He seemed possessed by life and peace and rest by Christ himself. It's equally important that you rediscover the inescapability of your own shortcomings. In this world, nobody gets away with anything. Just as surely as there's a physical law of gravitation, so there is a moral law of personal accountability. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. It's as sure a fact as that tomorrow the sun will rise in the east and set in the west. Human life is so arranged that you are not so much punished for your sins as by your sins. There is something about the very nature of your shortcomings that brings a penalty down upon you. The mills of God grind slowly, but in the end, they always get their man. Most people are not punished publicly by their sins, but I believe that the troubles of many people in America today are due to an inner sense of guilt which has taken from them their peace of soul and poise of spirit. The great need of the American people is a revival of the ancient Christian doctrine of forgiveness as the one way to face inescapability of our sins and shortcomings. We're told by one of his biographers that when Leonardo da Vinci was painting the great picture The Last Supper, he quarreled violently with a man. He swore to take vengeance upon him. In this mood of revenge, the great artist painted the face of Judas. But when he came to paint the face of Christ, he could not impart to it the expression of tenderness and love that he wished to portray. Finally, laying down his brush, da Vinci went out to find the man on whom he had sworn vengeance, and down on his knees begged his forgiveness. Then he returned and painted the face of Jesus. Before multitudes of people can ever be right with themselves, They must, through forgiveness, make themselves right with both God and man. Still another of your inescapables is sacrifice. A generation which has been taught to substitute self-expression for self-sacrifice and self-indulgence for self-discipline needs to hear the inescapable fact that no man ever gets through this life without sacrificing himself for one thing or another. Whatever road you travel— the high road, or the low road, you cannot escape sacrifice. There are people who expect the best in life without effort. They think that a good personality is a gift, denied to some and given to others, whereas it is not only a religious but a scientifically proved fact that personality is not a gift, but an achievement won through the practice of self-sacrifice and service. One of our best psychologists has said, No discovery of modern psychology is, in my opinion, so important as its scientific proof of the necessity of self-sacrifice or discipline to self-realization and happiness. Whatever your potentialities, they will amount to little or nothing unless you subject yourself to hard work and discipline. No achievement you make in your character or personality is ever accidental, Once when Rufus Choate was told that he had accomplished a certain splendid result, largely by accident, he exclaimed, Nonsense! You might as well drop the Greek alphabet on the ground and expect to pick up the Iliad. It's a well-known fact that Paderewski thought nothing of going over a single bar of music 40 times. Before a concert, he found it absolutely necessary to go through this whole program to refresh his memory. Once, when he played before Queen Victoria, she exclaimed with great enthusiasm, "'Oh, you're a genius!' "'Ah, Your Majesty,' he replied, "'perhaps, but before I was a genius, I was a drudge.'" Character and personality are not gifts, but achievements won through the practice of sacrifice and service. In contrast, consider the philosophy that certain politicians are spreading abroad in this country— They're teaching the American people to expect a better and more abundant life without effort. They are literally saying, All you need to do is go to the polls and vote for me, and I'll give you everything you want. Now, to go on, you will do well to accept the inescapability of suffering. In spite of all that modern science has done to relieve suffering, there's still a certain irreducible minimum which no physician's pill or surgeon's knife can eliminate. Life upon this planet in its very nature is inescapably difficult. Many people, refusing to believe that life is difficult, show themselves poor sportsmen when they are faced with suffering. They want the rules changed. They don't want to keep on playing the game when it seems to be going against them. In their days of prosperity and pleasure, they got the idea that life is easier than it really is, and thus they fail to develop within themselves the resources to meet inevitable difficulties as they come. Life is even more difficult when suffering is resented. Life is made easier when suffering is accepted, transcended, and transmuted into good. Many people would confess that they owe the greatness and grandeur of their lives to their tremendous difficulties. They would confess that they learned their greatest lesson from suffering. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. You cannot escape yourself, the moral law, sacrifice, suffering, and you cannot escape God, for God is in all of these. You may live as though you denied it, Yet you are always dependent. Your life is not your own. Wherever you go, whatever you do, you'll be restless until you turn and find your rest in a peace and a power greater than your own. In discovering your inescapable need of God lies the ultimate secret of the rediscovery of yourself. Well, this chapter was not particularly uplifting, was it? You know, as I was reading this, I was sort of taken by surprise by how timeless this little book is. We have to remember that this book was written 80 years ago, during an era in which the whole world was in conflict. This chapter may read a bit harsh, but... I think there are some hard realities in life. And if we really want to change ourselves and create a new life for ourselves this year, I think this is stuff we have to hear. So let's remember what those inescapables were that Miller mentioned. There were five of them. Yourself, you can't escape yourself. Moral law, sacrifice, suffering, and God. These things all exist whether we acknowledge them or not, right? How many times have we seen people in our lives, or maybe we've had this experience ourselves, where we try to go our own way? We try, for example, to go to extraordinary lengths to avoid suffering, or to live as if God didn't exist, or maybe to establish our own brand of morality, only for everything to end in disaster. Well, I think Miller's message is that There's a way through the difficulties of life, but that way is by walking through them with God. We can't do it on our own. So yeah, this chapter was pretty sobering. Let's see what's up next. Chapter five, what is it? Okay, chapter five is called The Value of Little Things. So that's what we have to look forward to next time. Well, hey, I've enjoyed spending this time with you. I hope you'll come back in a couple of Sundays so we can continue our little journey through this book together. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon.